I was ready for a change mentally. I was ready for a change. I was exhausted. And I decided that I needed to just stop feeling sorry for myself and stop avoiding being in uncomfortable situations. And I started to do all these things that I'd always wanted to do, but been too afraid to. The key to progress in anything is just having the courage to start something when you're not ready, but just believing in yourself enough that you'll figure it out along the way. And that's what everyone is doing. No one has this magic roadmap. Welcome to the When Women Fly podcast, where we speak with women who dare to pursue their dreams and fly, literally and metaphorically. In a world that tells women they're too much or too little, it's easy to feel boxed in. But we are here to change the narrative. Every woman harbors the spirit of flight. And on this show, we explore the magic that happens when a woman charts her own course and pursues her dreams, one story at a time. I am your host, Sylvia Winter. Our season opener starts off strong with our next guest, retired U.S. Air Force Major Michelle Mace Curran, Thunderbird in the number five position, lead solo. The story of how she got there, what she had to overcome, and how she navigated in a male-dominated culture that both enabled her and challenged her, the sheer degree and intensity of what Michelle has done will amaze and inspire you. We talk about setbacks, debriefs, being a trailblazer, a first and an only, an introvert turned public figure, and what it means to zig when others zag. We hear how Michelle is now stepping into her own venture, risking all that it takes to do something apart from the norm and start a business around motivational speaking called Upside Down Dreams. Check out our show notes and episode webpage at whenwomenfly.com to find links to Michelle's Instagram with zillions of incredible videos and photos of flying in wild and insane configurations. So for anyone amidst inflections and disruptions in life right now, you are in the right place. There are so many gems in this next hour together. I am so happy you are here with me today as we open up season three of the When Women Fly podcast. My conversation with Michelle Curran. Michelle, I'm so excited to talk to you today. I've actually been hounding you for a while and I was anticipating the time when we could actually talk and you had transitioned out of your role. So welcome. Thank you for taking this time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. It was great when you reached out and I kind of looked into who you'd had on the show and what you'd done and I thought it would be a great fit as well. So I'm glad we could make it work. So I want to start by setting up your background and your circumstances, what you were like as a kid and what influenced you. Yeah. Anytime I talk about what I was like when I was a kid, I think people are a little bit surprised. I had no exposure to the military or aviation in general outside of flying commercially a handful of times. Um, you know, grew up in a small town in Northern Wisconsin, about 4,000 people. And I was very shy. I would get stressed out over social situations. But then the other half of my personality, when I was away from my peers or from school, I was very adventurous. So I grew up in the country and I was always outside building tree forts and finding animals and making makeshift rafts and putting them on the river near our house. I was always doing that kind of thing. So it was a little bit of a dichotomy there. 
And I think that part of my personality is what eventually led me to go on kind of adventurous career path. Did you ever think as a kid that you would accomplish so much? No, I don't think so. You know, I didn't even know about fighter aircraft or fighter pilots, much less the Thunderbirds. I never really thought about gender roles at all. My parents were both hardworking. My mom worked full-time, as did my dad. They always were supportive of whatever I wanted to do. And as a kid, I went through several phases of different things I thought I was going to do when I grew up. It was like an archaeologist right after Jurassic Park came out, of course. And that one stuck around for a while. And then law enforcement really rose to the top for quite a while. I wanted to eventually go into a three-letter agency like the FBI or the CIA. And that's what eventually led me to be a criminal justice major in college. So all of that was kind of what I imagined I would do and dreamed of doing. Those are both careers that are male-dominated as well. So I don't think I was ever deterred by that. And I ever really even just thought about it as a factor at all. But I had kind of a late exposure to the military and to aviation. And once I decided that that's what I wanted to do, I guess I went in went in with all my chips and, and here we are. Yeah. So you didn't dream so much of flying, but there was that thread of the FBI and law enforcement. So do you see a thread that connects your dreams that you had sort of initially to then becoming a pilot later? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, law enforcement and the military have so many parallels and there's definitely kind of a desire to help people and keep people safe and protect people that goes into that goes into either of those. And also there's some toughness that's required and some grit that's required. And so I see a lot of parallels between being a woman in law enforcement and being a woman in the military. So how did you navigate college? Because that experience seems like it was really pivotal in setting you up to what you're what you ended up doing. Absolutely. I mean, that's where I've figured out that I wanted to be a fighter pilot in high school. I realized I didn't, you know, have a college fund. My parents were super hardworking, but they were blue collar. There wasn't, you know, a big fund of money for me to just spend on education. But I had always been a very good student. So I had straight A's. And I started to talk with my parents about scholarships and, you know, ways I could pay for school in the next couple of years. And after many conversations, my dad suggested ROTC. And initially I pushed back. I was like, I don't want to be in the military. I have this plan. I want to be a normal college student. I think I had this imaginary college experience in my head that high school kids do where I was going to go to parties and I was going to have all these friends and all this freedom and doing ROTC sounded restrictive, but we started to look into it. And I realized there were a ton of opportunities there. There was the opportunity for a free education. There was opportunity to travel all over the world and do some pretty incredible things that I couldn't even imagine yet at that point. And I grew up in a great town, but I definitely didn't want to stay there. I wanted to travel, see the world. So I eventually applied and got an Air Force ROTC scholarship. So I went into college with that, and I knew I was going to owe the Air Force four years to pay for the education that they were paying for for me. So my plan was, again, criminal justice, and then four years in probably OSI, which is like Air Force Special Investigations. It's a good fit with that degree. And then after that, I would apply to the three-letter agencies that I already mentioned. But about halfway through, we went on a base visit and I actually saw my first fighter aircraft take off in full afterburner 
ever. So I'm already a cadet at that point. And that was just a huge moment. I remember what the AB looked like with the big flame shooting out the back. I remember what the jet noise sounded like. And it was just a visceral reaction that got me so excited. And I pivoted that day. I decided I was going to throw my hat in the ring to try to get a pilot slot. Which is very competitive. It is. The initial pilot slot allocation just ebbs and flows depending on what the needs of the Air Force are. I think most people in my class that wanted it ended up getting it. There weren't that many. And then to get in fighter aircraft, though, once you are in pilot training, once you're actually a lieutenant and now you're learning to fly, is very competitive. And at that point, a class of around 25 students was getting anywhere from one to three fighter airframes available at the end of the course. Not everyone wants to fly a fighter. Some people get airsick. Some people just like the bases or the schedule or the mission of various other aircraft, but it's still very competitive. Yeah. So you've described to me, uh, jumping up forward a little bit, your first assignment in Japan. Let's segue into that because I think that there's a lot in that experience. But can you help us from where you were in that when you decided you wanted to be a pilot and then learning to fly in that context? What was that experience like for you? I went into Air Force pilot training and the formal pipeline that you go through with zero civilian time. I think I had ridden in a Cessna as a passenger twice, and I had never been the pilot in command. I had never soloed. I was just not exposed to it very much. So there's an initial flight screening um, that's about a month long. And the whole goal of that is for the Air Force to screen out people that aren't going to cut it in the faster more complicated, more expensive to operate aircraft once you start the year-long pilot training program. So I learned in a DA-20, I got to solo. That month was one of the hardest training programs I went through in my entire career, which is crazy because, right, I went on to be a Thunderbird and the Thunderbird training season is very demanding, but it was just drinking from a fire hose. I had no aviation background. I had no background in aerodynamics. I had no mechanical background. So I didn't understand oil systems or hydraulics or any of that. All of that was new in addition to how do I actually fly the airplane? How does a pattern work? How does a, what does a runway hold short line look like? like? Every single thing was brand new. Yeah. It was a lot in one month. So there were periods there for sure where it would be like 11 o'clock at night and I knew I had to get up at 5 a.m. the next morning and I would just be studying and studying and then I would start to get that overwhelming feeling where I know I need sleep, but there's just so much to learn. And that anxiety, it's just so stressful. And there's only a handful of times in my career where I felt like I was doing everything I could to succeed and it might not be enough. So IFS intro or initial flight screening was was the first time I felt that. Was the first time it did that to you? Yeah. And how did you keep your goal in mind or did that falter at all? Did you just sort of have your eye on the prize? And it's kind of like a great question of like, how did you kind of keep going with that? Even it was a pretty short amount of time, but still. It was. I kind of just powered through it. My goal never changed. I never doubted if it was something I wanted. I relied heavily on the people that were in my flight with me. They were amazing. They spent extra time studying with me, sitting in the simulator, going through the checklist over and over and over. They spent extra time helping me learn the systems that I didn't understand if they did understand them. A lot of them had engineering backgrounds, so it came easier for them. 
And there were so many group study sessions and I definitely would have not made it without having other people around me to help lift me up. That's, that's for sure. That was my biggest takeaway from that program. So tell us about Japan and how you got there and then what those years were like for you. Absolutely. So Japan was my first combat squadron. So I went from initial flight screening to a year of pilot training. I got an F-16 out of there, went to Arizona, learned to fly the F-16 for another year, and then off to my first official squadron where I'm finally not a student anymore. But you're still a student. You're just not formally a student because you show up and you are still a lieutenant. You still really don't know what you're doing. You might be able to fly the aircraft okay as far as left hand, right hand, but the tactics, you've just barely scratched the surface and there's just so much to learn. So, you know, pilot training went really well for me. The F-16 course went, went okay. It didn't go as well as pilot training, but, you know, middle of the pack, no huge hiccups. It went fine. And then I got to Japan and it was like a slap in the face. <laughs> I think part of it was, it's a huge culture shock and I love to travel, but living in a foreign country, especially one so culturally different. I don't speak the language. Most of them in the area that I lived in, most of the Japanese didn't speak English. So it was just very difficult to communicate. Um, there are a lot of factors, but the tactics were the big thing. It was very complicated. I realized the mission of the aircraft station there, especially there was a lot to it. Mm -hmm. And actually flying the jet had to be just something you did in the background without even thinking about it. And my second flight in country is the one that earned me my call sign. And I broke the speed of sound when I wasn't supposed to. Um, we'll just say that. And I almost G-locked, which is G-induced loss of consciousness. For those that aren't familiar, the F-16 can pull nine Gs and you can easily pass out under that force. And I almost did. And single seat aircraft, you can imagine what the repercussions can be. So that flight and realizing how serious of a business it really was. I think that was the first time my eyes were open to that part of it. And that on top of feeling like I just couldn't catch up on the technical knowledge, I had a rough time in Misawa. I felt I had worked you know, so hard to become an F-16 pilot. It had been a goal since about halfway through college. And here we are five years later. And now that I've gotten there, I don't think I'm good enough to do it. I don't think that I belong there. And I felt I didn't fit in in the squadron either. So it was just a multi-front assault. I felt like it was a tough part in my career. I, if I did not owe the Air Force a contract, I would have walked away if someone gave me the option, which is crazy because I had worked towards that for five years. And now that I'm there, if someone had been like, you can go do anything else, I would have been like, okay, sounds good. Yeah, it seems like it ultimately tested so many aspects of your character, your skills, your endurance, and nothing seems like it was particularly easy. Are there things that you see now that you learned from that experience? Absolutely. I think that I thought that I was the only new lieutenant who felt that way and struggled at that level. But it turns out everyone that comes in is overwhelmed and is not very good because it's such a difficult career path. It takes time. It takes repetition and experience to really get, get good at things. But I had always been an achiever who had done well at things and a little bit of a perfectionist. So it just completely threw me off balance to suddenly feel like I was so in over my head. Yeah. With IFS, I felt like 
I knew what to do. I could chip away at it. And I was still making progress constantly. I could look at a short program a month long and the amount of information I needed to learn was a lot, but it felt like it was still finite. There was an end to it. And I was working towards it. With Masawa, I was like, this is my career now. This There's endless stuff to know. And the, just the, the level of complexity was so much higher. And I didn't feel like I had the support network there that I had in that course where everyone else was in the same boat in an actual squadron. People are coming in at all different times. So I, the last person that had arrived before me had already been there for maybe six months at that point. So they're already kind of settled in. So I'm the only new person. And you're just kind of, even though they try to support you, you're on an island a little bit. And it was just all new. I'm curious what you learned about relationships and mental health during that time. Oh, how important it is to have have those people. And it did get to a point where I had to find the people I could really connect with beyond just being coworkers because you're so isolated. Living in Misawa, everyone you work with, that's also your social group. And you all live on base as well. So those are also your neighbors. And so at points, it feels like everyone is watching you struggle. I hate to talk about the entire assignment like I do because there were amazing people that I did meet while I was there that I'm still friends with that really like knew me beyond just the squadron and all the struggles I went through. But it was very few people. It was a handful. If I could go back, I probably would have been just more transparent with people because I'm sure there are so many others that would have been willing to help if they had known that I felt like I was struggling as much as I was. They probably had no idea because I, I hid it really well. And what happened to your confidence when you were there? I felt like an imposter. If you, We talk about imposter syndrome a lot, um, especially with women. And I was the poster child for that. Like I had gained a lot of confidence, I think, from being a really shy, introverted kid during ROTC, during pilot training, doing really well in that program, getting that fighter jet. I think I gained a lot of confidence during that time. And then I kind of got set back and it was just reverting back to that kid who didn't want to be called on in class and just avoided being put on the spot, especially because I felt like I, if I was ever in front of my peers or if I raised my hand and asked a question, it was just so obvious to everyone else how little I knew. That's how I felt, at least, even though it probably wasn't. Mm -hmm. There was a while where I thought that that was going to be my entire career. And I owed 10 years after pilot training. So at that point, I owed eight plus years still. And I was like, well, this is going to be a long eight years. Wow. So how did you transition out of that context? So one of the hard parts about being in the military is moving so much and you're moving to a new assignment every two and a half to three years. But in this case, it was a blessing. It acted as a catalyst for a new chapter, new people. I had been getting better. I had been becoming a better fighter pilot that entire time, even though it didn't feel like it. So I was a flight lead at that point. So I could, you know, take brand new wingmen out and lead an entire formation. I could brief us. I could debrief us. So I, I had gained skills. It wasn't like I just barely survived that entire assignment, although it felt that way. And so I got my next assignment off to Fort Worth, Texas. And not only was it a shift because it was, you know, back in the US, so that felt more comfortable, but it was a new group of people and I was ready for a change mentally. I was ready for a change. I was exhausted. And it felt like just a breath of fresh air. And there were so many possibilities all of a sudden again. And I decided that I needed to just stop feeling sorry for myself and stop avoiding, you know, being in uncomfortable situations. 
stop procrastinating when it came to really diving in and learning the hard stuff. That's part of the job because it was so overwhelming. So I would avoid it, which just made it worse. And I started to do all these things that I'd always wanted to do, but been too afraid to. And I ended up signing up for a bunch of marathons. So endurance sports and dove headfirst into that. And I did that, that entire assignment and it really helped build just like a training plan, a repetition of doing something hard. And it gave me a lot of time of putting in those training miles by myself to reflect on things. It built a ton of mental toughness, obviously physical toughness, but the mental part was worth more than the physical part because that fades pretty quickly when you stop doing those long runs. But I think the mental toughness taught me some life lessons. Yeah. And then I'd always wanted to get into technical mountaineering. It's just something since I was a kid that had intrigued me. And I decided to sign up for a course and go spend a week on a glacier and climb Mount Baker. And because I love the mountains, I wanted to go to Nepal. So I booked a trip and flew to Kathmandu by myself. Had like 24 hours in the city completely alone where I just took little tuk-tuks and went and saw all the different things. And then I joined up with a group of strangers and did the trek to Everest Base Camp. And incredible. Highly recommend that, by the way. It sounds crazy, but it's actually a super obtainable thing that people should do. I became an instructor pilot, which means people are putting a lot of trust in you to teach others. So that built my confidence. I think where I really realized how much I had changed as a person over the last year and a half or so was right after I had become an instructor, an email came through looking for instructor pilots to go to Poland to teach their pilots in their F-16s. And my initial reaction was one of excitement that I absolutely wanted to do that because again, I love to travel. I'd never been there. What a cool thing to get to go do to stay there for a whole summer, essentially. And then the little voice of doubt that I had listened to so much in the past, all of a sudden was like, you have been an instructor for, I think it was like three or four days at that point. I had just become an instructor. (laughs) Like we had just been like, congratulations, Mace is an IP. And then three days later, I'm like, can I go be an instructor in Poland? And I'm like, surely there's people that have been instructors for years and have so many more hours than me and so much more experience. The Polish Air Force didn't have any women flying their F-16s. So I didn't know much about the culture. I didn't know how they would react to that, if I would be well-received, if I would be completely just written off and not listened to and not be able to do my job because of that. So I started to have all those thoughts and I paused for a second. But then I looked back at all those other things I had just done that had been some of the most rewarding experiences of my life. And I was like, what are you doing? You made a promise to yourself that you would say yes to all of these exciting, but a little bit scary things. And so I went to my boss and I was like, can I apply to this? Even though I'm, you know, brand new instructor pilot. And he was like, absolutely, let's, let's do it. And so I ended up going off to Poland and instructing there. And it was incredible. I still talk to some of the Polish pilots really cool experience for sure. Yeah. It's so interesting how I see in the change between Japan and then Texas and the way that you are able to build up your confidence and then how that shows up in so many different ways. I love to talk about change and if we can just kind of double click on that a bit because all of us have gone through this sort of collective pressure of COVID over the last two plus years in which change has been put upon us externally. But there are also things that we can do to change 
where we are physically. And you had this change of environment that allowed you to start anew. And sort of the art of and science of change does point to those transitions as being these opportune moments for sort of reinventing yourself or rejiggering things. And in that environment where you do move frequently, I wanted to just ask what it's like to sort of be able to reinvent yourself and what you decide to take with you. Because I'm sure there were experiences in Japan that obviously was very challenging, but clearly as a person and your character grew. And then you are in this new environment. And do you remember like what, like what was going on in you that sort of felt empowered to make the change and be the change rather than just be like, okay, I'm kind of down and out about my experience and feeling really low confident. And I mostly am asking this for my listeners who you know, may or may not have the ability to change their life or may have changed thrust upon them. But what can we learn from that opportunity to change and what that meant for you and what advice you might have? I don't think I consciously made a list of the good things I wanted to keep and the bad things I wanted <laughs> yeah. to get rid of at that point. Looking back on it, I had really become very self-sufficient and very independent living in a foreign country and struggling with some of the things that I did and not feeling like I had a great support network. I would travel by myself regularly. I would Every time I came back to the US towards the end of my time there, I get on the train, go to Tokyo, be in Tokyo Station, trying to figure out which train to get onto the airport and all that all by myself. And that was always a little bit stressful and scary, but turns out I never got lost. I made it. So I think just empowered me as a person to just believe in my own self-sufficiency, which put me in a spot when I was moved to a new assignment for good or for bad, where I could use that as a tool to really go after all of those things when I decided to make that mindset shift and start saying yes to the scary stuff. I had the tools to be able to do that. So traveling to Kathmandu by myself, I was like, oh, I've done this. This isn't that big of a deal. It'll be fine. So there were some benefits, absolutely, of being thrust outside my comfort zone for those three years in Japan. Do you have any advice for women or anyone who are experiencing setbacks or have had setbacks, given your experience of how you were able to kind of figure out how to make that a comeback? That everyone experiences them. I think the common misconception is that a lot of people that have gone on to do successful things, if you looked at me as the lead solo for the Thunderbirds, it would be very easy to make a lot of assumptions. Or just like fighter pilots in general, people make a lot of assumptions that we're all very confident. We're all very type A. We all have just crushed in every phase of our lives. And I think if you can realize that everyone, even those people that have gone on to do very great things or successful things or or whatever it is, have been in your shoes, it gives you this ray of hope that, oh, if they can get through it, so can I. And then the other part is people don't do things alone. Like even though it might appear like they've powered through everything on their own, the strength that you have when you have a confidant to lean on or an ally or whatever form that takes is just huge. So 
being vulnerable with someone or a few people and sharing that you're struggling and, you know, leaning on those people in that rough time is just huge. It's huge, isn't it? Yeah. Really can't do it alone. Let's talk about flying a little bit. I'm really interested in the type of flying that you did on a regular basis and what it does to your body. Can you tell us the stresses and regardless of gender and just how you endured that? That's one of the more difficult things about being a Thunderbird pilot is the level of proficiency and skill you have to have to fly the demo takes so much repetition. And as any high stress activity that's repetition on your body, whether it's a sport or flying, it does take a toll. So if you're into aviation and you understand trim and like leveling off the aircraft so that you could take your hand off the stick and it would just fly straight without climbing or descending, we would actually trim the aircraft nose down. So we would put quite a bit of forward force. So if I was to let go of the stick, the jet would dive towards the ground. And the reason that we did that is because you can put in much more precise control inputs if you're just slowly adjusting the amount you're pulling back on the stick compared to pushing on the stick. It's just not as precise. So we would all fly with nose down trim. And in terms of weight of force that you were holding with one arm, because that 16 is a side stick. So on the right side, for me, I had about half of the maximum amount available. So probably about 10 to 12 pounds of force that I held for the entire show. Some of the guys that fly in the diamond, they would put all the way nose down because they're in close formation the entire time. And so they would be holding about 20 pounds of force for the entire show, which you're like, oh, 12, 10 pounds, 12 pounds. I could do a lot of curls with that. That doesn't sound too bad. But to be holding it and adjusting it in such precise, small movements, a lot of people would develop uh, tendonitis in their arms, like tendon issues, ligament issues. Your fingers would go numb. Your hands would go numb. So there's that. And then G-forces. Yeah, I was going to ask. The pulling Gs in the F-16 can't be a whole lot of fun from your body's perspective. No, I think at first when you are learning to fly the jet, you're just adjusting to it. And it has a little bit of novelty because it's this new thing. It sounds super cool to pull nine Gs. But 10 years in, 12 years in, or longer, it definitely starts to have a compression effect on your body. So a lot of people have lower back issues, myself included, neck issues, just your whole spine is being compressed all the time. So you can imagine some of the stuff that would come with that. A lot of stiffness and just aches and pains. So for me personally, I had occasional stuff that would pop up, but nothing that really lingered until I joined the Thunderbirds. And then the solo profile, the left solo especially, the maneuver or the couple of maneuvers that I flew were the highest G for anyone on the team, which was the max turn followed by the half Cuban. So that's a full 360 degree turn. And then also vertical rolls, which is actually my favorite maneuver to fly. But again, as I squared the corner, Um, From flying level to pointing straight up, I would pull eight plus Gs. So I was hitting over eight Gs probably three times every single demonstration, which doesn't really sound like a lot. But now you imagine that I did that for three years and probably flew that demonstration, I don't know, a thousand times, maybe high hundreds for sure. That's just a lot of a lot of wear and tear on the body. It's a lot of wear and tear. It is for sure. 
So the usual time doing the Thunderbird position that you had was two years, but it became three years. Can you explain that? So that was the plan, two years. But 2020 happened and the timing of the pandemic is pretty incredible. We're all packed for our first air show of the year, which we had just gone through that winter training season, which there's so much work and such a grind. And then there's so much excitement leading up to actually taking the show on the road for the first time. And our advanced pilot who goes out the day before had already left and gone to this first show site, which was in Texas. Our C-17 that carries all of our cargo and the rest of the personnel was there and loaded up. Our suitcases were on, on the C-17 pack to go. And then we had just been hearing about this COVID thing, but you've heard about swine flu and bird flu. And you're like, oh, it's just one of these. It's fine. It'll affect you know some areas, but life will go on like normal. And we're in our briefing to go fly cross country from Vegas to Texas for our first show. We're talking about it. Our boss is like, what do you guys think? Is this going to be a big deal? He's like, I'm starting to think it might be a big deal. Like, let's call number eight, our advanced pilot, and see what the show site thinks is going to happen. So we call him and he's like, everything's a go. I think we're good. We're like, well, before we you know, bring 70 more people and multiple airplanes across the country for the show, like, can you just go have a pointed conversation with them about what they think is going to happen with this air show? And this, so this is March. This is the middle of March. Yeah. When things are, everything's shutting down, like by the day. Oh yeah. So we were down to the minute we were delaying our, like continuing our briefing and con- going out to the airplanes to get in them to take off for the first show. So we heard back and he's like, I think you should wait 24 hours. Just Rolex everything till tomorrow. And you could still fly in on Friday. You could still fly the show Saturday and Sunday. And then by the time 24 hours had passed, the show had canceled. And we went into quarantine, essentially. They sent everyone home. They're like, take your laptops. We don't know when you're coming back. And We ended up working from home for the next month plus, which is a very strange thing to work from home when you're an Air Force pilot, right? Yeah. So what did that actually even mean? I mean, your work is flying. So how did you actually do that? At first, it was a little bit of a breath of fresh air because we got a lot of uninterrupted time with our families. So we didn't think it would be that long. So we're like, okay, this week, like, yes, we'll check in with each other. We're trying to figure out what the plan is. We'll check our emails. We'll work on any like admin stuff we had working behind the scenes, but it was fairly relaxed. And I really valued that time at home. Honestly, it was, we had some great memories as a family from an overall terrible experience for our country, but eventually we're like, okay, you know, one air show after another is canceling. We're starting to lose air shows that are in June, July, August, like far out. Our show season is just crumbling. It's falling apart. And then this, One night on our group text message, one of the other pilots started joking that we need to do flyovers. He's like, we need to fly all over the place and inspire people because life sucks for a lot of people right now. And we're like, huh, very funny. Like, how many drinks have you had? Like, what are you (laughs) doing right now? (laughs) And then we found out that that idea had trickled up and higher ups in the leadership chain were starting to talk about it. And if it was actually something that would have a positive impact, if it would be good PR for the Air Force, because of course, that's also a concern. If we could do it safely, there were a lot of factors. So we decided to do a test run over Vegas. And so we flew all over the city, which a lot of people in Las Vegas don't even know that the Thunderbirds are based out of here, because we're kind of 
Uh, we were, you know, at Nellis up in the northeast corner and people come to Vegas and they stay down by the strip and they just don't know people that have like been born and raised here. You'd be like, where are the Thunderbird space? They'd be like, oh, what's the Thunderbird? Which just blows my mind. <laughs> One of the things we wanted to do also was have greater ties to our home city. And people love all the sports teams that have moved here recently, the Golden Knights and the Raiders. And we're like, why do people not associate the Thunderbirds with Vegas? Like, why don't people come up near the base to watch the Thunderbirds do a flyover when they're in Vegas to go see other things? So we did a flyover all over the city and we got great feedback. People loved it. They would come out of their houses in their backyards. They would line up on street corners. They would climb to the top of mountains on the west side of the town. And they were still social distancing, but you could see people all over the place outside, like watching. And I think it was just a relief or like just a change for people when they had just been stuck in their houses and so much uncertainty. And so we decided to take the show on the road in the form of flyovers. So we then did Colorado, which that was a rough, a rough flight. It was very long. We air fueled multiple times. The weather was bad. It was snowing. The ceilings were at like 3,000 feet. And we're flying along the front range, which obviously are tall mountains. And uh, that was the longest I had flown in formation ever in my career. So talk about my arm going numb and like my neck. And they were fair. Were they? I'm trying to remember, but I was pretty isolated in Vermont during that period. But they were somewhat controversial, no, as well. I'm wondering what, where you, how that worked with you as a pilot. Yeah. So social media became the wild west a little bit. You had the people that absolutely loved it that were like, this is amazing. This is like a great sign of unity for our country. This is a great uplifting force. And then you had the people that were like, why are you spending money on jet fuel? It should be spent on masks or whatever. Masks. Yeah. And we're like, it's easy to say that when you don't understand how budgets work and how pots of money are allocated years in advance and how you can't just take the defense budget and reallocate it to, to masks. And you wouldn't want to do that either. So the other thing that people often don't understand is kind of like I mentioned, the amount we have to fly to stay proficient. And if we had just not flown that entire summer, the amount of time and money and resources that would have had to go in to retraining us would have been greater than just having us fly training flights all summer. And if we're already flying, us just going out and flying the demonstration at the range here north of Las Vegas over and over and over, sure, we're going to stay proficient. We're also going to go mad out of, out of boredom, but we aren't impacting anyone. We're not doing the Thunderbirds mission to recruit, retain, and inspire. And it's a wasted resource. If you're going to be spending that money, those flight hours, the jet fuel, the maintenance costs, why not have an impact on people? So going back to that initial recruit, retain, and... Inspire. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so we were able to continue to do the mission. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it just grew, honestly, and people started to really get on board as they saw the positive impact overall that it was having. And so we started to get a lot of requests from way up in the chain of command and all of a sudden we're flying over the White House and we're flying over New York City. Yeah, you're doing like 500 feet above JFK, aren't you? Or some nearly? Yeah, so... Crazy. There were different areas where we could go down to 500 feet versus 1,000 feet. But either way, it was very low for high-performance jets to be flying, especially in formation. And we flew over 
Denver International. We flew over LAX, JFK, Newark, uh, Philadelphia, Atlanta. We flew over Atlanta, the the international airport with smoke on information right past the control tower because no commercial airliners were flying. Wow. It was just such a crazy time in aviation. What a crazy time. Yeah, seriously. So a less controversial (laughs) flyover um, was your first one, the Super Bowl. Can you just tell us about that, what that was like? Oh, that was stressful, uh, but amazing. There's a trend. The highest stress things are also (laughs) the greatest things. That was the very first event for the public that I did on the team. Like, got hired in fall of 2018, came out to Las Vegas, started training with the team. We came together as the Delta, which is all six of us. That's what that formation is called. About a week prior to the Super Bowl, because we had kind of been separate, the four diamond pilots really working on their specific maneuvers, myself and the lead solo at the time working on our solo maneuvers. And then we came together. We're like, okay, we can all fly straight and level formation a week before we're debuting in front of millions of people. And there's very small margin for air. We want to fly over the stadium at the Be and Brave in the national anthem. So your timing has to be exquisite. Yes. So I don't think a lot of people realize how much goes into a great flyover. It's more than just being in formation. There's so much with the run in direction, the perspective that we want to give the crowd, the perspective that the production company or the broadcast company wants for the TV cameras, what they have leading up to the national anthem. Do they have an invocation? Do they have another song that's going to be played? Is it pre-recorded? Is it live? Is are the live artists that are delivering all these things consistent with how long it takes them to do it? Or is the person singing the national anthem going to get nervous and sing faster? Or are they going to start embellishing notes and holding things? I was just going to say, just throw in an extra trill there and throw everything out. Absolutely. So we have our advanced pilot and director of operations on the ground in the stadium, like with the production company, and they have the entire national anthem. Well, they have many things before that written out with the times they should be happening. And they're tracking if they're ahead or behind the entire time. And so we'll get an update with an adjustment to our time over target, which is to be right over the stadium a few minutes in advance. And then once the national anthem starts singing, each line of the song is supposed to be hitting a certain number of seconds. And so we're getting like on time. And we'll get a call, you know, 30 seconds later, you're still on time. And so we're already headed down track at that point because we're about 30 miles away to get set up. And so the train has left the station at that point. And so we can make small adjustments, maybe plus or minus five seconds by pulling the power back and slowing down or pushing the power up and speeding up. But with six jets in close formation, there's only so much you can do. You can't really do S turns or anything like that. So, you know, we'll get... There's all these different contracts with what radio calls will be made, but it'll be like, boss, push it up or boss, pull it back or new TOT, five seconds late, five seconds early. Luckily, Thunderbird won while I was on the team was very, very good at flyovers. He is a very smart guy and has like the brain of a robot. So he had all of these little checkpoints that he would be like hitting in his head of like the required ground speed at a certain amount of time, a certain degrees off from our run and heading and all this stuff. So while I was on the team, we pretty much checked every flyover we did, but it's not an easy feat and they're often messed up. Yeah, man. 
I always feel like I could talk about flying forever, but I want to transition to just some other topics that we haven't been able to talk about. I imagine with the type of person you are, pretty intense, aspects of you pretty intense, that being on, well, that having relationships can be interesting. And I think a lot of our listeners can kind of relate to the fact that like sometimes there's conflict between our intensity and our relationships and how we manage that. What insights do you have? And also like what was dating like as a former pilot? How did you even manage that? So when I first moved to Las Vegas, I got on dating apps and I was on Bumble. And that's actually how I met my now husband which I think a lot of people are like, oh, someone had a success story through Bumble. That's just <laughs> yeah. so exciting to hear. That gives me hope. Um, I, a lot of people have told me that because I know I'm 34 now. So at the time I was like 31. And I think a lot of women that have been pursuing their careers and are successful in that, right, have a hard time or they feel like they have a hard time finding quality guys to date um, in your early 30s. I found that it was frustrating. A lot of people will get very hung up on my career. And of course, I want you to acknowledge it. But just like I will acknowledge your career, I don't want our first date to become you being a fan and me answering like a Q&A like I would do on social media. You know what I mean? Totally. So my husband was refreshing because he was in the Marines and I had on my profile that I was an Air Force pilot, but I did not have that I flew an F-16 or that at the time I was training to become a Thunderbird. None of that was on there. And I think his first message to me was something like, oh, you're an Air Force pilot. What do you fly? And I said, F-16s. And he said, that's cool, but I prefer the A-10. And I was just like, what? (laughs) Yeah, he knows your language. (laughs) He's not going to be intimidated. Who is this person and why do they feel that way? Yeah. <laughs> and then he told me why. And he was a turret gunner in the Marines during some pretty serious fighting. So he has a love for the guys that protected him, which were a lot of A-10 pilots at the time. And it totally made sense. And actually, our military experience is so different from each other. He was deployed doing some pretty crazy stuff when I was just graduating high school. and. I was in the air pretty protected whenever I was deployed and he was in the thick of it. So he gives me a hard time about my bougie Air Force lifestyle. Yeah, I was going to say you plush. Oh, yeah. It's like, I think I told him a story about being in Afghanistan and getting my iced latte from the little like green bean coffee stand. And he was just like, we didn't take a shower for like a month because we were outside the wire. I was like, I mean, I appreciate what you did. I didn't want that lifestyle, which is why I chose the Air Force. Yeah. We could talk about our experiences and the other person would understand it to an extent, at least. And it gave us just a lot of common ground. And he's also from the Midwest. And living in Vegas, trying to date when you're from a small town in the Midwest, talk about culture shock. I mean, Japan was one thing, but (laughs) trying to date in Vegas is a whole other thing. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm a Midwesterner too and grew up in Western Illinois. And there, there is something, it's always nice to, to meet another Midwesterner. You're like, okay, you get it. And you get, how, you get how being where I am now is not like the normal route, right? It was not, it's not like most of my people I grew up running around with are, are still there. Yeah, same. So I think it 
gave us just common core values and kind of just common down to earth personalities. So we, we hit it off right away. We started dating in like very early December and we got engaged in April and married in May. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, there we go. Yeah. So you didn't feel like you had to change who you are. It sounds like things just really worked out for you because I've heard story. I mean, I've never dated in the era of social media, but I've just heard just a lot of stories of women just finding that, you know, they have to change their profile and kind of dumb it down and just kind of sad. Yeah. So I'll preface that with I was married previously. So I was married for six years to my high school sweetheart, essentially. And then we got divorced while I was in Japan. So add that to the list of traumatic things that was happening during that. So then I dated for a handful of years in between that and meeting my husband. And I think looking back at me in my early 20s or mid 20s versus me in my late 20s and early 30s, my whole perspective on who I was as a person and that trickled into my confidence dating was just completely different. At that point, knew that I didn't need to compromise and that there was someone out there that would be totally supportive and give me a hard time about stuff when I needed it, like joke back and forth and, but still underlying be completely supportive. And yeah, I just felt like I didn't need to change and that it would work out. And it did. But if you had told me that five years prior or longer, I would have probably been much more insecure and feeling like I needed to adapt to be more of your stereotypical woman and not, you know, a female fighter pilot. So I think that's just common experience. I think most women, if you ask them to look back at like who they were in their early 20s versus late and into their 30s and even beyond, you just grow as a person so much. So that's reflected in the romantic side of your life as well. Yeah, totally is. Then the layers of confidence that we build through time is we sort of wish we could tell our younger self that sometimes, but. Oh yeah, absolutely. I wanted to ask you about the importance of the debrief. And how that transfers into other areas of life. Obviously, in the work, maybe it's not obvious to everybody, but in the work that you did for many, many years, debriefing was part of a day in the life of. And I've just often thought, I'm not the only one that thinks this, uh, other people have thought this too, but how important a debrief is and, and what if we could actually bring that more into common practice in our daily lives, in our relationships, in our other work that wasn't just around flying or operations. Can you speak to that? For sure. So in the fighter pilot culture, one of the things you start doing, I mean, all the way into pilot training, so not just fighter pilots, we kind of take it to a more extreme level. But after you fly, you aren't just like, oh, that went pretty well. High five each other and go on about your day. You spend usually much more time than you actually spent airborne diving into what went right, what went wrong. And then figuring out really why things went right and why things went wrong. Well, beyond, well, you just totally missed that bad guy on your radar. Like, what were you looking at instead? And why was that bad guy in a spot we didn't expect him? Should we have seen him, you know, five minutes sooner when we were doing X? And we just start to peel back the layers of the onion to really find out what the cause was that led you down that path. And the reason that we do that is not to point blame at people, but it's to figure out what went wrong and how we can fix it next time to be better. And not every Air Force, when you look at other countries, does that like the United States does. And that's like one of the things that makes us really good Hmm. is that we 
can set egos aside and constantly strive to be better. And when you get in that debrief room, it doesn't matter who you are, we're going to talk about the mistakes you made and we're all going to learn from them. And when we leave the debrief room, you know, you're back to being whatever rank you are, the roles are back in place, but we all just learned from everyone's mistakes and and we're better for it. And it doesn't have to be such a formal process where you go in and shut the door and like leave the cell phones out and no disruptions. You're not leaving till we're done with this. But just having the ability to make it a priority when something big in life happens or whether that's at work or even with your own family to look back at things and be like, oh, how could we have done that better? And what should we have learned from that? Because we're obviously learning all the time, but to make it a little bit more formal where you consciously acknowledge it really makes it resonate with you and helps you carry it forward. Yeah, I think it does. And I think sort of being intentional about making space for that reflection in the community with whoever else is involved, I feel like we miss out on that a lot in our, again, in these other areas and in operations, we do it. And obviously in the Air Force, you do it to an extreme. But yeah, I feel like that's something that we could all maybe spread the word on that a little bit more and practice it more. Such an easy thing relatively. And I think the, the impact is really big. Absolutely. I think we're always just feeling like we need to get on with the next thing on our to-do list. And it's just a rat race. Right. And you're like, okay, well, done with that, right? On to the next thing. Absolutely. I could be better about it just as I left active duty and launched this speaking business and I'm trying to figure out how to run a business. I should take 15, 30 minutes on a Friday at the end of my week and look back and be like, did I use my time the best way? How could I lay a better plan in place next week? What did I miss? What what stressed me out? Why? And use that the following week. So I think anyone could really benefit from it. Totally. Like bring that up to the goals that you had and how did you meet them and and what were some of the unintended pressure points and and all that type of thing. Okay. So since you brought it up, tell us what you are transitioning into now. So I've gotten asked a lot how you could walk away from flying an aircraft like the F-16 after almost 13 years on active duty after flying for the Thunderbirds. The part of being a Thunderbird that I liked the most, despite being a little bit introverted and finding a lot of the social interactions kind of draining, my favorite part was still the ability to inspire other people and to really encourage them to do something they thought they couldn't do. And being the only woman flying on the team at the time, I was in kind of a unique position to see that happening all the time. When I would meet little girls, women of all ages, really, I could just see their eyes light up, especially little girls who had never met someone that looked like them doing something like that. It was almost like I saw this new path in their brains just like open up where they're like, look at all these possibilities. And that was the most rewarding thing. And so I really wanted to find a way to continue to have an impact on people in a positive way, obviously, and kind of share a lot of what I've shared today about, I had a really hard time early in my career and I didn't think I should have been there. And feeling like an imposter and having all that self-doubt and then getting to a point where I forced myself to face my fears and the rewards that came from that and sharing those struggles with people, I think gives them a peek behind the curtain and they all of a sudden feel like they can do what they thought was impossible. And so because of that, I founded Upside Down Dreams and I'm now doing public speaking. So it's very new. I'm only a couple of months in. It's been a completely new industry for me to learn. I talk about getting outside your comfort zone, facing your fears. I've been nervous before I stepped on stage every single time. 
but it's gotten amazing feedback. And I've spoken to some fairly diverse groups already, everyone from some high school kids to executives, and they've all come back with great things to say and like really good takeaways that applied to them. So I'm excited to keep growing it and keep getting out there. It's it's very rewarding because I can see it's having an impact on people. And I just felt like I had more of a calling to do things to impact people than to go to the airlines. Not that that's a hit on that career because it's it's great for so many people. But yeah, so that's kind of why I decided to pivot. Yeah. And I think it sounded to me when we spoke before that COVID helped you have the time to really think about what was best for you and what the call your calling was and not as much just sort of going with the flow, which would have been going to the airlines next. But gosh, I love that you took that and just really owned this next step. And what a brave thing. What a brave thing we can all do to just move into a next chapter that we're not quite sure how it's going to unfold, but we just know we're going in the right place. And we know that there are things ahead of us that are greater than they would be otherwise if we didn't take on the unknown. Absolutely. And I've never run a business, so that is all new. But (laughs) I also, I mean, we keep talking about how I was like super shy growing up and I'm still kind of introverted. So it's very outside my comfort zone to do for a living something that puts me in front of groups of people and makes me speak to them where everyone in the room is watching me. It's just so funny. But I think when I share that with people, they're like, wow, you're actually like practicing what you preach. You're actually doing what you are encouraging us to do. And there's a quote that I use in in my presentation. And I think it just resonates with what with what you said that you know, the key to progress in anything is just having the courage to start something when you're not ready, but just believing in yourself enough that you'll figure it out along the way. And that's what everyone is doing. No one has this magic roadmap. Especially for women, just yes, right? Like you just get it enough together that you are like, can show up and trust in community and trust that we can do so much more than we believe we can. It seems like that is something that we can really shift by example. Yeah, everyone is just figuring it out. Yeah, exactly. Everyone is trying to figure it out, right? Regardless of the veil. Right. So just realizing that you're not alone in that journey and that's just kind of the human experience is is pretty empowering. What personality trait do you feel is your biggest contribution to your work? I was going to say, when you started speaking before I heard the question, because of course, I'm not a great listener. So I already start to think about my answer (laughs) before you finish talking, working on that. I was like, oh, determination is probably one of my best personality traits. But as far as the speaking, I think it's empathy, which can be kind of in short supply sometimes in the fighter pilot community. And I think it's a thing that differentiates me from a lot of people. Not that they're just terrible humans. That sounds bad. but just when I meet someone, I feel like I put myself in their shoes very quickly. So I try really hard to not judge people because I don't know their circumstances. And I feel very emotionally invested in them succeeding, I guess is one way to put it. And sometimes that's exhausting because a lot of bad stuff is happening in the world. And I will like empathize with the people in Ukraine or the mom on TV that something terrible has happened to her kid or whatever it is. And I'm just like, so upset by it. My husband's like, what is wrong with you? 
But I think it's kind of a superpower when it comes to the industry I just stepped into. Yeah, I completely agree if that's a superpower. I mean, the sensitivity is can have some challenge to it, but I think having that empathetic part of you and then figuring out how to build a, a life and a profession around that has a lot of good that it can do in the world. I um, have a couple sort of closing questions. So this is a podcast where we celebrate the spirit of flight, of taking on the challenges and reaching beyond predetermined heights. In that context, what does flying mean to you? If you had asked me just a few years ago, I would have talked literally about flying and aviation with the pivot I've just made. And I have used the term leap of faith so many times lately. And I've really reflected on my career as I've tried to write the most impactful message to share with people. And I think it's just the spirit of discovery. And for me as a kid, I couldn't have told you what that thing was that maybe Alice like out there questing for more adventures and more things that eventually led me to find discovery in aviation. It's kind of that like adventure spirit and just keeping going towards the unknown because it's exciting and it's fulfilling. And there's so much out there that you don't even know yet. And there's so many opportunities right around the corner that you can't see. I think that's what it means for me is it's more than just getting in an airplane at this point. Yeah. It's more than just literally taking off. Yeah. I love that. What's one surprising thing that people may not know about you? I think the empathy thing that I just talked about, a lot of people would have not expected me to say that. I definitely put on a pretty strong mask through my entire career to come across as very stoic because I felt like it was a weakness. And I've kind of shifted my thoughts on that recently. So that's like a more deep answer. Another thing people are always surprised for that's just funny is I was a figure skater growing up for 12 years. Really? And I'm 5'10". I'm a giant. I don't know if you ever like see my workout videos, but I am... <laughs> like muscular and strong and I'm taller than my husband. And so people are always like, wait, a figure skater? What? Yeah, I wasn't that good, but it was fun. Yeah, that's a great one. If you had a food truck, what would it be? It would for sure be desserts. It would be cupcakes. Oh, perfect. Actually, it would be mini cupcakes because I'm the person that wants to try every flavor. And so if we get like a box of donuts, I cut them into tiny pieces so I can eat all of the different flavors. And then I probably <laughs> eat like three donuts total. So with cupcakes, it would be the same thing. If they were like normal size, I would be eating like 10 cupcakes a day. So they would be the tiny cupcakes in all kinds of cool creative flavors. Oh my gosh. I love that answer. It's such a metaphor too, right? Of all the, the little, little pieces. I'll try it all. What are you most proud of? I am most proud of taking the path less traveled just really looking at what fulfills me as a person and going after it and not settling for the status quo. Yeah. And what are you reading right now? So many different things. I just got a book by uh, a person I have followed on social media for a long time. So Nowhere for Very Long. It's by Brianna Medea. I think I'm saying her name right. I followed her on social media for a while and she is Talk about a spirit of discovery. It's kind of a memoir and she's just a free spirit that travels all over the desert with her dogs and lived in a van for a really long time. And 
she's just a little bit of a free spirit's really the best word, a little bit of a hippie, but reading her book right now and her journey through life from coming from kind of Connecticut, the Northeast with like a fairly proper family and taking this just path completely different than what everyone expected and her growth as a person through it. It just really resonates with me. So highly recommend it. Nowhere for very long. That's a really interesting one. I have never heard of it actually. So we'll make sure we put it in the show notes. And what parting advice can you give our listeners about exceeding their own expectations or making their dreams come true? A lot of it just comes down to it's going to be work and there's going to be highs and lows. And you just have to know that and prepare yourself for that. So when you do hit the lows, you know that that's not forever. It's a temporary setback. And there's so many good things to come. And, you know, really being intentional with your energy and your goals and and where you're investing your time and just trying to be optimistic. And I have not been the best person at that through various points in my career. But when I look back and I could take that mindset of being like, it's all going to work out. It's going to be okay. I'm just going to keep doing the things that I know I have control of and keep working on those. Those were very rewarding and happy times for me, even if they weren't the most successful points in my career or my life in general. I think we can, and we often do, teach the lessons that we most need to learn ourselves. (laughs) Oh yeah, absolutely. How can our listeners follow you? So I'm pretty active on Instagram. And especially if you scroll back a little ways to a few months ago, I have a lot of 16 cockpit footage from the Thunderbirds, which people really tend to like. It's very cool, but... It's very cool, just to put in a little plug there. Yeah. It's a cool perspective. So that's uh, Mace, just M-A-C-E, which is my call sign, underscore Curran, my last name, C-U-R-R-A-N. So that's Instagram. That's probably the best place. And then my Michelle Mace Curran on LinkedIn. And I'm trying to be much more active on there because now I'm you know, in the business world as well. And then macecurran.com is the website for my speaking company for Upside Down Dreams. So there's, there's several different places you can find me. Upside Down Dreams. I feel like it's just the beginning of all that we will hear about that. I'm really excited for you in that venture. And I'm just excited for people to hear this conversation. And it's interesting to hear both your background, but also sort of be in this moment of change. I think sometimes we, and we did sometime in this conversation too, talk about change in the past, but I think we'll have to have a follow-up conversation when we can sort of reflect on this moment and what it means kind of at a different stage of change. But I think change is a is a theme this year. So I really appreciate you taking some time to share your past and and all that you have been so generous to share over this hour. Thank you so much. It's been great. And I love that we dove into some deeper things beyond just the flying for the team, which obviously is a really cool thing and was a great part of my career. But I think there's just so many lessons to be learned. And I agree, it's a great time for us to have this conversation. I think it looks a lot different now than it would have six months ago when we first started talking. And I think the timing really worked out well. Wow. Thanks, Michelle, for your service, for showing up countless times as an inspiration, for your sense of pragmatism and compassion for others. I really loved this conversation. And if we are all about exploring change right now, what a great moment to tap into Michelle's new turn and hear how exciting and intimidating it can be to branch out. 
step into something new and believe that you have what it takes to start a new venture. I also love how she said the debrief is something uniquely American. I'm going to think about that. Michelle is just courage to me. She just goes there and she takes us with her and she holds our hand and we hold hers. And I think you could listen to this conversation many times. Don't forget, we have an episode for every recording on the whenwomenfly.com website. And there you can find resources, downloads, links, and everything you need for the guests. I am so glad that you are here for this conversation. And season three is in full swing. Don't miss a single episode. Subscribe to the podcast and join our newsletter. And if this episode or any episode resonates with you, share it. And you will have amplified a story that just might spark a pivotal moment for someone. We love hearing from you. So leave a review or email us at hello at whenwomenfly.com. Okay, that's a wrap. Thanks team for helping pull off season three. I send you love and light and strength and flight. However that shows up for you today. The world needs women who fly. Let's keep learning together. Be bold, be brave, and fly. I'll see you next time.